Welcome to the Sunset Community Church podcast. You're listening to sermon audio from our Sunday morning services. For more information about Sunset Community Church, visit us online at sunsetcommunity.church. It is my pleasure to welcome our speaker this morning, introduce him. Um, for those of you that were there yesterday, Joe Chambers did a soul care seminar yesterday that was just so uh, ministering to us and such a blessing. I've already heard from many of you who attended that um, you were just so grateful for it. And I'm so grateful he's with us again today to, to preach uh, and to share his sermon today. Um, so uh, our church went through a book, our church leadership team, ministry team, went through a book called The Other Half of Church about a year ago, uh, maybe a year and a half now. And part of it was just kind of learning about how we grow and develop as human beings. But what does that look like in church? What does it look like to grow into the character of Jesus? And one of the things they talked about was we, you know, from little babies, we look for examples to follow. We look for examples of what it looks like to you know, we're teaching Aiden how to eat right now. You know, we're like he's we're, he's watching us spoon and feed, you know, feed ourselves, and we kind of give him a spoon and say, "Now you try." Um, and but that doesn't stop when we're little babies. It doesn't stop when we're kid. We need this constantly in our lives, no matter how young or old we are. Especially if we're talking about what it looks like to become like the character of Jesus. We need examples of those who are walking that life of love, that are, that are walking into that gentleness, that are walking into that grace, um, and walk, living out this kind of life. And, um, and Joe would be maybe slightly uh, embarrassed for me to say this, but I think Joe Chambers has one of those people for me and Tiffany. Um, we, we look to him as a wonderful example of what it looks like to embrace the grace of Jesus and to walk it out. And, um, I, and I'm, he, he knows what the love of Christ is for him, and he expresses that so well for others. And so it is my honor to welcome Joe to come up and share. So thank you so much, Joe. Good morning. It is an honor to be invited back on Sunday when you spoke to so many on Saturday. Sometimes that doesn't happen. Um, I love Aaron and Tiffany. Um, they are special to me. And they have a little boy named Aiden that is special. And I'm growing to love you, friend. You have a wonderful pastor. You know that, right? You treat him well. Treat him well. There's a scripture in Matthew chapter 3 that I'd like you to turn to. And um, just to give you a little bit of context of what I want to share with you today, John the Baptizer was the trending preacher of the day. He, he was the hottest thing going in Israel um, in the first century. And one day, a cousin of his comes to see him. And that's what we'll read about. But just remember, John, wild hair, camel hair clothing, wide leather belt, has an appetite for grasshoppers and wild honey. And he is fearless, fearless in who he will call out. He will speak truth to power. And so people were coming from all over 
to hear him preach and to be baptized by him in the Jordan. That's the context. Okay. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, just as he came up from the water, Suddenly the heavens were opened to him, and he saw God's Spirit descending like a dove, alighting on him. And a voice from the heavens said, This is my Son, the Beloved, with him I am well pleased. This is God's Word. In the summer of 2013, ten years ago, I hiked the Pacific Crest Trail through the state of Oregon. I started at the border of California and, or and Oregon, and I hiked it all the way to the border of Oregon and Washington. That's 460-something miles. I hiked 15 miles a day, carried my own pack. Sometimes I walked 20 miles a day. It was the, one of the greatest things I've ever done in terms of just physical endurance and the people I got to meet along the way. Now, you may not know this, but when you're on the trail, there are people that start in Mexico and hike all the way to Canada. They're called through hikers. And they almost all acquire a trail name along the way. Now, a trail name is like a nickname. Something's happened, and so somebody gives them a name, and then that's their handle or their trail name the rest of the trip. Day hikers don't get those. Section hikers like me might get those. But I met a guy one time and I asked him his name the first night I was out on the trail. He said, my name is Bear Cow. And then I met a young lady who said her name was Peanut Butter Platypus. <laughs> I met another young man that said his, his trail name was Sweet Jesus. And so eventually I would ask them, oh, and I met another guy named Kindergarten Cop. And then I asked him, Where, how did you get your name? Because it's always kind of a fun story, right? So Bear Cow, apparently, was sitting out in the campfire, and just at the edge of the camplight, he saw eyes kind of following him as he was fixing his supper. And he just knew it was a bear. But it turns out, that a farmer's cow had gotten out, and it was cow eyes that were looking at him, but his trail name became Bear Cow. Peanut Butter Platypus thought it would be a good idea to fill her camelback bladder in her pack with peanut butter and then just suck it out as she walked down the trail. Turns out that's not a great idea, but her trail name became Peanut Butter Platypus. Sweet Jesus, well, he was, had long hair, a beard, beautiful smile, and was white. And so everybody started calling him, that's a joke, uh, started calling him Sweet Jesus. Kindergarten cop. 
Kindergarten Cop was a retired police officer from L.A., and he could do an incredible personation of Arnold Schwarzenegger, and so he became Kindergarten Cop. So we get these trail names. Now, one night I was talking with Kindergarten Cop. We had a zero day, they call it. We might call it a Sabbath, but you can't walk every day, so you take a day, and you rest, and then you resupply, and then you go on. And so I was sitting with Kindergarten Cop, and uh, he we began to tell me all these stories of what happened when he was a police officer in L.A., and it were weird and strange and vulgar and really expressed some of the darkness of humanity. And I finally, I just said, hey, what did all of that do to your soul? He said, what do you mean? I mean, you've seen mankind at its worst. Where did that go in your soul? How did it affect you? And he looked at me and said, what do you do? <laughs> and I don't like telling that, honestly, even on an airplane. I don't like saying I'm a pastor because if you say that, it changes everything. You know what I'm talking about. I mean, it's suddenly everybody gets nice and changes stuff and they get weird on you. So, uh, but I did. I said, well, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a pastor. And he went, oh, expletive, deleted, blankety, blank this. He said, I'm sorry, pastor. And then he said... I've got your trail name for you, The Rev, short for Reverend. And I went, I don't, I don't like that. I don't, want, I don't want to be called that. But he said, nope, from now on, you're The Rev. Well, I thought about that. Well, am I? Is that who I am? The Reverend? The Rev? What happens if I stop reverending? If I stop being a reverend, who am I? You see, part of the fallacy of our culture is that we have adopted an identity based upon what we do. And if we stop doing that, sometimes we get disoriented about who we are. Henry Nouwen wrote a book, and in that book he talks about the five lies of identity. Let me read them to you. I am what I have. I am what I do. I am what other people say or think about me. I'm nothing more than my worst moment. I'm nothing less than my best moment. These are all lies. But we all, many of us, live with these lies. And when we live with these lies, any one or a combination of them, we live in the shadow of what God plans for us to live. And we will often thwart the abundant life that Jesus promised us when we came to faith in him. You are not what you do. You are not what you have. You are not your worst moment. You're not even your best moment. You're not what other people say about you. You're something bigger and deeper and better than that. A.W. Tozer says this, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about me. What comes into my mind when I think about God is the most important thing about me. And so the question I want you to ponder, perhaps, is when you think of God thinking of you, what do you imagine is the look on his face? How does God feel about you? 
Now, I know, I know you're supposed to say, he loves me. And he does love you. But sometimes I wonder if we think, well, he loves me because he has to. It's his job. Of course he loves me. Theologically, he has to love me. But I wonder if you would imagine that it's possible for God to also like you. He wants to hang out with you. He wants to talk to you. He wants to spend time with you. I wonder if you could imagine a God who looks in on you while you sleep at night, just like this father looks in on his son and just marvels at the beauty of that little boy. I wonder if you would imagine a God who would do that for you and does it every night. I grew up in the Southern Baptist denomination, and one of the most important doctrines that was in the ethos of our faith, and it's not wrong, but it is a dominant theme, is the idea of original sin. That we are all sinners, and that we can't help it. Adam and Eve started it, and we adopted it, and it's a part of our spiritual DNA, and we all have this sin issue. And that means, by the way, that we are predisposed to sin. We can't do anything about it. No one cannot sin if you're born in this world. That's original sin. We even have a very famous sermon that was preached in this country by a man named Jonathan Edwards. Some of you may have heard of Jonathan Edwards. His most famous sermon has a very interesting title. Do you know what that title is? Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Put that on a t-shirt. <laughs> Sinners in the hands of an angry God. Isaac Watts even wrote a hymn about that, not about that, but about this idea. He said, alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for a worm such as I? A worm. Did you know you were a worm? We're, well... I do some wormy things. Have you ever done a wormy thing before? Sure you have. But my question is, is the deepest truth about me the fact that I'm a worm? Is the deepest truth about me the fact that I'm a sinner? I started to wrestle with this a few years ago, that I'm really not questioning my sin nature. I sin all the time. But I'm wondering if that's the most dominant and deepest truth about who I am and about who you are. In my town of Buena Vista, Colorado, it's a small town, 2,700 people or so, and they have a, um, a cough, uh, um, an ice cream shop, and it's called Louie's. And you can go to it, and it's got a little courtyard out there, and you can get all your, you know, the favorite ice cream that you like, and you can sit and eat this ice cream, and it's next to a brick building, an old brick building, red brick on it, and they hung a giant blackboard about the size of, oh, I don't know, a huge blackboard. It's, it's large. And at the top it says, there, it says uh, when I, before I die, I want to, and then dot, dot, dot. Before I die, I want to, and then you can 
piece of chalk and you can fill in. I want to climb Mount Everest. I want to finish my novel. I want to do this. I want to do that. And it's sometimes it ranges from the most profane thing you could imagine and sometimes very profound. And it's quite fascinating uh, to see what different people over the few weeks or months that they leave it open right. One time I was there with my wife and I looked down in the corner, right down at the very small, in small letters. I had to squint to look at it. It said, before I die, I want to be loved. That is the sad cry of the human heart. I want to know that I am loved. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And eventually he had to leave and Mary and Joseph down to Egypt because they had to get out of Herod's way. Herod dies and Joseph in a dream finds out that it's all clear and then goes back up to Nazareth. And they set up their home in Nazareth. I don't know what you know about Nazareth, but Nazareth did not have a very good reputation in Jesus' day. In fact, Nathaniel has that famous thing that he said, can anything, what, good come from Nazareth? It, it sounds a lot like a cliche. You might have even seen it on a bumper sticker of the local chariots that would drive around town. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Nazareth had a sketchy reputation. There's a part of the reason we think that that was true is They've discovered archaeologically, not too far from Nazareth, a town called Sepphoris. And Sepphoris was a Roman town, and there was an amphitheater there, and there was where they would put on pagan plays, and then there was also a Roman bathhouses there, and it was one of Herod's favorite hangouts. And so it was built about the time of Jesus' birth, and so there's a good chance that Jesus and Joseph probably worked at Sepphoris. And so because it was such a sinful place for Orthodox Jews, the assumption was some of that must have leached over into Nazareth. And so when they say, can anything good come from Nazareth, that's probably what they're thinking. It had to have contaminated Nazareth. So this is a really kind of bad place. It's a small town. My town, the Buena Vista, is 2,700 people. How big do you think Nazareth was? Let me give you what the scholars will tell you. Anywhere from one to 300 people were in Nazareth. Now, when you live in a town of one to 300 people, what do you know? You know everything about everybody, don't you? There's a good chance you're related at some level with some of those folks. And Jesus' conception was a bit um, unusual, what would you say? And so around the water coolers in Nazareth, do you think they gossiped a little about about Jesus and Mary and Joseph? You know they did. You know they did. So Jesus was raised in a town with a bad reputation, a small town. What did Joseph, his father, do for a living? Do you remember? He was a carpenter. Now, I don't know what you think of when you think of a carpenter. I think of a master builder or a cabinet maker or something like that. But the word carpenter is the word tecton, and it means someone who works with their hands. And it can mean they work with wood, but it could also mean they work with stone. Now, when you live in a town of one to 200 people, probably not a lot of home building going on. Would you agree? So probably what Joseph ended up doing was whatever it took to provide for his family by using his hands. And that might mean to build a retaining wall out of stone sometimes. 
It might mean that he repaired a roof that had gone bad sometime. It might be that he was the guy that you called to build a new shack out back for your new goat. In other words, Joseph was the town handyman. Are you still with me? Joseph was the town handyman of a small town with a bad reputation. Somewhere between age 12 and 30, Joseph passes away and Jesus takes over the family business. Now get your head around this. Jesus was the town handyman in a really small town, as obscure as it can be. He did not go to seminary. He did not go to college. He was homeschooled, and locally, he learned all he knew about the Bible in the local synagogue. He did not attach himself to a traveling rabbi. He was a man who worked with his hands. At age 30, he feels a call. We're sure, still not sure how this all happens. But he feels a call, and he leaves Nazareth, and he travels the 70 miles down to Jericho, where he comes up to his cousin John and says, baptize me. And John says, no, I don't, and I'm, I'm going to paraphrase a lot here. He says, no, I, I should be baptized by you. I don't even, the sandals. I'm, Jesus said, no, we need to do this. And so, and so John baptizes Jesus. He's in the water. Now, I think John is shivering, and I don't think it's because it's cold. I think John must have realized this is a big deal. This is the beginning of something pretty profound. And so Jesus and John are standing in the, Bab in the baptistry, in the Jordan River, and John puts his hand behind Jesus' shoulders and lowers him down into that water and then up out of that water. And you remember what the story says. The story says the heavens opened and the Spirit descended in the form of a dove and lit on his shoulders. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, the Beloved. I am pleased with him. Man, there's a lot of scenes that I want to hopefully get to view when I'm in heaven. If God could just put me in a time machine and put me back someplace. And if he's, if he's going to do that, or maybe, maybe he could just giant heavenly jumbotron. And I can watch the baptism of Jesus. I would love that. Can you imagine Jesus being lowered into the water? He comes up out of the water, and his hair is now matted on his forehead, and rivulets of water are dripping off his beard, and his robe is clinging to his chest. The spirit in the form of a dove is on his shoulder, and the voice says, This is my son, the beloved. I'm pleased with him. There are a lot of scenes that I want to replay in heaven, but that's number one. The beloved. But here's a question. Why was the voice so pleased with him? What had he done? Yeah, but he hadn't done anything. He'd hung a door. He'd patched a roof, right? He'd built a shack out back. He'd taken care of mom and his brothers and sisters, but he'd not preached a sermon yet. He'd not told a story yet. He'd not healed anyone. No eyes had been opened or ears opened. He'd not walked on water. 
He'd not done anything that we know him for. None of the things that he has a reputation for now had he done. And the voice said, you're my beloved. I'm pleased with you just right here. The reason this is so important is because many of us in this room get our sense of value based upon what we do. Based upon who I'm married to. Based upon my occupation. Jesus was the beloved of God and he hadn't done anything but work with his hands and take care of his family. And God says, just as you are, you're the beloved. You're enough. This is foundational for walking into a life of abundancy. Did you know that the scriptures tell us that when we have a covenant relationship with Jesus, that we are in Christ? That's Paul's favorite phrase, we are in Christ. Over 150 times Paul says you are in Christ. You have a covenant relationship with God through faith in Jesus, you're in Christ. Now, I don't know all of that means, but here's what part of what that means. At least I think it means this way. That when Jesus went into the waters of baptism, I went with him. And when he came up out of the waters of the baptism, I came out with him. And when the voice said, this is my son, the beloved, the voice was saying that as much to me as it was to Jesus because I'm in Christ. It's not because I've done great things. It's because I'm in Christ, and Christ is the beloved of God, and that means if I'm in him, I'm the beloved of God, and so are you. You are the beloved of God. It's the most important truth about you. Dale Bruner says this, All kindness heard in the Father's voice for his only true Son is conveyed to us in baptism. That's certainly not always easy to hear the voice that would call us the beloved. There are so many voices that are screaming in our ears all the time. You're not good enough. You're not pretty enough. You're not thin enough. You're not accomplished enough. You're not successful enough. You're not enough. And we hear that all the time. And unless you change your performance, and unless you change your looks, unless you lose some weight, unless you do something, you will never be the beloved. And that is a lie straight from hell, and it smells like smoke. You are the beloved of God, as you are. And you don't need to do anything to gain that favor. There was a young couple that came to Univista to spend some time in a soul care intensive that I was a part of, and her name was Jill, and she gave me permission to share this story with you. She said she was married to a pastor, and she was really struggling with her sense of self, and she had children that were young, and he was busy a lot, and she was being feeling a little overlooked and neglected a lot, and so she was feeling really sorry for herself and feeling unseen and unknown. And she loves trees. Jill loves trees, especially in the fall in Colorado when the aspen turned gold. And so one year, her husband, Mark, and her got in a Jeep and went out to see the colors. 
And she said, I never drive, but this time I was driving the Jeep. It was in four-wheel drive, and we were going up this road, and I was feeling unseen and neglected and all of this, but we were wanting to see the beautiful trees. And she said, in the depths of my sorrow, Mark, my husband, said, out of the blue, Jill, you make me smile. And she turned to him and said, Mark, that was so sweet. How That was so sweet to say that at the right time for me. And he said, oh, no, I was reading a tree. There's a tree out here, and carved in the side of a tree is the words, Jill, you make me smile. So she slammed on the brakes, put the Jeep in park, got out and went around and looked. And sure enough, on this giant aspen tree, someone put a heart and then with a knife carved, Jill, you make me smile. And she said, it suddenly did not matter that my husband said those words and did not mean them. (laughs) And it did not matter that someone had defaced a beautiful tree with those words. What I heard in that moment was God said, I see you. You make me smile, Jill. And so she took a picture of that tree, framed it, and hung it in her home. Longing of our heart, the deep longing of our heart, is to be loved by God. You know, there's an old flannel graph story in the Old Testament about Jacob and Esau. Do you know this story? Jacob... In Esau are twin brothers. Their father is Isaac. Isaac's an old man. And by the way, Esau is Isaac's favorite son. Uh, Isaac is an outdoorsman. He likes to hunt. He likes to fish. He probably watches football. He's apparently quite hairy. And he's got a good uh, recipe for a savory dish. Jacob, his twin brother, is Rebecca's favorite son. And Jacob is apparently smooth-skinned and um, mama's boy and probably listens to jazz and reads poetry and would be called maybe indoorsy. I don't know. But this is the two guys, right? And Isaac says to Esau, go out and go hunting and kill an animal and bring it back and give me that dish that you make and I will give you the blessing of belovedness. And so Esau says, okay, and off he goes. In the meantime, Rebekah and Jacob hatch this plan to intercept this blessing. And so she says to Jacob, let's kill a kid goat, skin it, and then I'll fix the dish. You put the hair of the goat on your hands, arms, and neck. Do you remember this? And, And then you go in and take the dish into your dad and see what happens. Okay, so they do this. They go into the dark tent. It's dark in there, and Isaac's eyes are growing dim, and and he says, who is this? And Jacob lies. Jacob says, it's me, your firstborn son, Esau, here with your meal and to receive a blessing. And one of the funniest things that Eugene Peterson writing about this said that Isaac says next, he says, back so soon. (laughs) Uh, Because it's not, he's skeptical. And so Isaac says, come, come here. There's something suspicious about this. Come here. And he, I think he smells him, and then he wants to touch his hands. Do you remember this? He wants to feel the hair, and he does, and he eats the savory ditch, and he blesses Jacob. And then Jacob leaves. 
And Rebecca says, this is really going to get scary here. Try to lay low someplace, right? Esau comes back. He makes the dish. He goes in. Who is it? Isaac says, it's me, your firstborn son, I, I, uh, Esau. I'm here with the dish to receive the blessing. And Isaac said, it's too late. I gave it to your brother. Why they only had one blessing beyond me? But that's the way it was. And one of the saddest verses in all of the Word of God is when Esau says, Bless me, me also, oh my father, bless me. But it was too late. Now, this is what's fascinating to me about this old story. <laughs> Jacob was willing to risk everything to get the blessing of belovedness. He was willing to risk the severance of a relationship with a twin brother permanently. He was willing to risk getting killed by his brother. He was willing to risk going into a far country and never seeing his family again. He was willing to risk everything to get the blessing of belovedness except to go into that tent as Jacob. He had to go in dressed up as somebody else to get the blessing of belovedness. I'm talking to some people this morning who've been pretending to be somebody else to get the blessing of the belovedness of the Father. What I love about Jesus is that when he came to see John to be baptized, he did not come dressed as the trending preacher of the day. He didn't come dressed up as camel hair and wide leather belts, brushing grasshoppers out of his beard with wild honey on his breath. He came as a tecton, as a town handyman, just as he was. And he heard the voice say, You're the beloved. You're the beloved. The deepest truth about me and the deepest truth about you is that you're the beloved of God. Now, Jesus needed to hear that because there were going to be a lot of people who were going to question that over and over and over again. The Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees would come to him and they would say, you're the son of a devil. And he would have to remember, no, I'm the beloved of God. You're a drunkard and a sinner. No, I'm the beloved of God. You are an illegitimate child. No, I'm the beloved of God. You're a lawbreaker. No, I'm the beloved of God. If you're the son of God, get down off of that cross. No, I'm the beloved of God and I'll stay. In Matthew 17, towards the end of his ministry, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John. They go up on the side of Mount, the Mount of Transfiguration. And do you know what happens up there? Suddenly a Shekinah cloud of glory starts to surround the mountain. And Peter looks up and he sees up on the side of the mountain that Jesus is standing there with Moses and Elijah. And in Luke's version of this story, it says they're talking to Jesus about his upcoming death. And while that's all happening, Peter, being Peter, 
starts to speak without thinking. And he says, this is so cool. This is in the original Greek. This is so cool that Jesus and Moses and Elijah, you know what we could do? We could build a lean-to. John, what do you think? This is a good idea, don't you think? We could build a lean-to, one for Jesus, one for Moses, and one. And then the scripture says, Matthew says, while he was still speaking. It's almost like God said, hang, Peter. He interrupts Peter. And while he was still speaking, the voice comes from the cloud. And it says, this is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. At the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, at his baptism, he hears the voice say, this is my son, the beloved. I'm pleased with him. Towards the end of his ministry, right before he's to be executed, he hears the voice says, this is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. And I think many points in between, while he was out in solitary places, he was communing with his father, and the father was reminding him that you are the beloved of God. And I'm just going to suggest this to you. If the second member of the Godhead needed to be reminded from time to time that he was the beloved of God, you and I are going to need a booster shot from time to time. Because you probably suffer from the same thing I suffer with. Spiritual attention deficit disorder. I forget who I am. I forget the deepest truth about me. And every time I do, I make mistakes and I sin. I love what Macrina Whitaker said this. She said, oh God, help me to believe the truth about myself, no matter how beautiful it is. Some of you need to hear that again. Oh God, help me to believe the truth about myself, no matter how beautiful it is. You're the beloved of God, and you don't have to do anything to get that. My brother is a poet. I'm not a poet, but my brother is. He's published some poetry. And, um, but about a year ago, I just texted out this thing I'm going to read you, and Somebody said, hey, that's not too bad for a guy like you. And so I put it on social media, and I got some feedback. And so I'm going to read it to you. I'm no poet, but I'm going to read you something that I wrote last year in a text. This is what it is. It says this. Before my first sin, before a single star or subatomic particle was ever spoken into being, I already existed in the mind of God. Before I was a sinner, I was a son. That's the deepest truth about me. Deeper than my sin is my belovedness. It's the deepest truth about me because it's the first truth about me. And it'll be the last. I'm the beloved. And so are you. You hope that's true, don't you? Life in this dark world can fragment us, and we become sometimes disintegrated. Different parts broken, shattered. But when we dare believe that we're the beloved of God, we can remember who we were before God created the star. I told you that I hiked the Pacific Crest Trail in 2013, and I met a lot of characters on that trail. 
the first time I stopped to resupply, I met a guy. I was been on the trail for a week, and I had gotten my resupply box, and I put it on a picnic table where they allowed the PCT hikers to, to spend the night. I put my pack down, and I'm stretched out on this picnic table, and there's a canopy of boughs, fir boughs, over me, and I was feeling foot sore and tired and worn out and a little lonely. And I hear some footfalls coming towards me. And I look up. There's already a tent set up in the campsite. I look up, and there was a guy coming to me, and he had blue cutoff jeans, a T-shirt. He had a gray beard and pockmarked face and a do-rag wrapped around his, his head. And when he saw me, he stopped and he bowed low like this. And he said, hello, sir. Welcome to your new home. On the trail, they call me Smoke. Then he stuck out his left hand for me to shake, and I shook it. He said, anything you need, you let me know, and I'll help you get it. And then he went over and crawled in, got into his tent. But before he did, he stopped at his tent, and he turned around and went... Like that, and got in his tent. I've seen some strange stuff, but that was, that was kind of weird. And so I set up my tent, and I started to fix myself some supper and that kind of thing, and smoke came out and talked to me some more. And then I took a zero day or a Sabbath the next day, and smoke talked to me the whole time. He followed me all over the place and talked and talked and talked and talked and talked. And what I found out was that he was not a PCT hiker. He was a homeless man that they allowed to camp in that area. So, and to exchange, he would clean up around the campground. And so Smoke would follow me around, talking to me the whole time. At one point, Smoke said, what do you do for when you're not on the trail? <laughs> I'm a pastor. Oh! <gasps> He started telling me about Vacation Bible School when he was a kid. He told me about his favorite preachers. He told me about his favorite books. He told me about his favorite verses. And he just went on and on and on. And then he stopped in the middle of all of this. He says, there's a lake. Do you think you could baptize me? Would you baptize me? And I went, man, I'm on vacation. I don't, I don't want to. And then, and then he said, oh, today's my mother's birthday. And I... I have no way to call her, and so I gave him my cell phone, and he called somebody. I don't have any idea who he talked to, but I assume it was his mother. Then he tore a piece of brown paper sack, and he had written on it um, confessions of sin that he'd committed, clips from verses of the scriptures, lyrics from Bob Seger songs, and different things, and he lines from movies. And he gave it to me, three pages of this stuff. And he gave it to me. And he said, Pastor, could you, could you carry this for me? And I went, okay. The next morning I get up ready to go. And smoke's up too. And so I'm starting to walk up the trail. I packed up my tent. And he's just talking 100 miles an hour. And I walk a little ways away from the camp. And smoke's following me. And I'm going, oh, my goodness. He's going to follow me all the way to Washington. I've got, to, I've got to somehow, without being rude, tell Smoke he can't come with me. And so I stopped. It's early in the morning. I stopped, and I turned around and I said, Smoke, would it be all right if I prayed for you? And he said, Pastor, 
I would consider it an honor if you would just call my name from time to time on the trail. Can I pray for you right now? He said, yeah. Can I put my hand on your shoulder? He said, yeah. So I put my hand on his shoulder, and he closed his eyes. And he tilted his head back as if to receive the first rays of the morning sun. And as I had my hand on, my sh- on his shoulder, I said, Smoke, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you, smoke, and give you peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I opened one eye and looked at him and tears were coming down his pockmarked face. And I put my hand on his chest and I just kind of tapped and I said, smoke, there's a really good heart beating in this chest. God loves you very much. And he looked at me and he said, Pastor, my name is Gary. When you remember who you are, that you're the beloved of God and you're loved by God, you remember what God thinks of you before he made a single star. Ladies and gentlemen, The devil knows your sin. The devil knows your name that calls you by your sin. God knows your sin that calls you by your name. Do you know what your name is? You're the beloved of God. This is one of the reasons we gather on every Sunday is to be reminded of the truths of God. And if you're like me, even as many times as you hear them, you say, yeah, but. Yeah, but Joe doesn't know me. (laughs) He doesn't know what I did this morning or last week. Yeah, I'm sure that applies to most people. But I hope today you would hear the resounding love of God. I was reminded of 1 John chapter 3, which says this. See what great love the Father has lavished on us. Where do we see that? We see that in the cross, what Jesus did for us. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. And so as you go from here today, May the love of God overshadow your, yeah, but. (laughs) May you know that you are his beloved. If you'd like prayer this morning, some of us will linger here in the front, and we'd love to pray for you and bless you as you go. For the rest of you as you go, I pray that you carry with you the truths of God into your workplaces, into your homes, and that he would call you by your name, and you'd hear him. Thank you, Joe, for being here with us this weekend. God bless you. Have a good rest of your week. You've been listening to sermon audio from Sunset Community Church. Sunset Community Church is located in Renton, Washington. For more information, 
visit our website at sunsetcommunity.church.